Last August, I got a call from my buddy Darren, who's the lead pastor of a church in Long Beach and one of a few friends that I kind of do life with and we regularly call each other to catch up and pray and share stuff. And he was really in turmoil that day. He just got a call that a good friend of his, another lead pastor in the LA area, had just taken his own life via suicide. Andrew Stockheim, if you know this story, he was 30 years old, wife, three little boys, charismatic, a lot of gifting in his life, pastor of a large and still growing church, definitely a workaholic. And something about it just um, took an emotional and even spiritual toll on his soul. The stereotype of a pastor is that, you know, we just sit around, drink coffee, chat with people, and study the Bible, you know. And that's all I do, but most people <laughs> have some other things on the docket. The reality is very different, especially in a megachurch like Andrew was in, where you're expected not just to be a teacher and spiritual director, but a CEO, executive director of a nonprofit, management guru, strategic expert, and, you know, therapist, community organizer, all of the above. It's just a lot of pressure. Andrew began to have panic attacks a few years ago, anxiety, depression. By last spring, he ended up in the hospital after one particularly bad panic attack. And from there, on a four-month sabbatical, kind of a turning point in his story. His first week back from sabbatical in August, he began actually a series on mental illness from the life of Elijah. If you know Elijah's story, there's a point where Elijah full-on says, God, take my life. It's like the Hebrew prophet version of On the Edge of Suicide. And he read stats, Andrew did, on suicide, such as the fact that last year 45,000 people in our country alone ended their life of their own free will and volition. He called it an epidemic. He said it's on the rise. He was honest about the devastating impact of suicide and mental illness, not just on the victim, but on the family and friends, how catastrophic it is, the fallout of that. And then 12 days later, he killed himself in his church office, while his wife and three boys were right outside the window on the church playground. Now, mental health is a very complex issue. I know that, unfortunately, from personal experience. My autobiography is eerily similar to his. But what struck me about this tragic story was a line from his wife, Kayla, and the teaching that they gave together his first week back from sabbatical. She said this, quote, We still have a long way to go to work through it, but we're all in. You guys, he loves this place so much. He didn't want to stop. He would have kept on going and going and going and going, and it probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. The irony is, 12 days later, his work did cost him his life. The Japanese have a phrase, kuroshi, that literally means death by overwork where people die normally of heart attack, stroke, or even starvation due to overwork. The clinical term is occupational sudden mortality. The term rose to prominence in the 1980s during the stock market boom when Kamaya Suji, who was this poster child all over Japan, a bit of a national hero, workaholic, over-the-top wealthy on, in finance, kind of a titan, coach to executives all over Japan, dropped dead at heart disease at the age of 26. And yet Americans work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese on average, 260 more hours per year than the British, and 499 more hours per year than the French, although I'm not sure that really counts. <laughs> we work more out, my point is, 
We work low blow, I'm sorry. We work more hours on average than any other country in the world. Workaholism is the only socially, is not only socially acceptable, but it is something we lionize. Even in the moral decay of the West, few people that I know brag about breaking the Ten Commandments, brag about like how many lies they told that week, or how many affairs, or how many people are dead because of them that week. And yet, regularly, I hear people at church brag about how many days we worked in a row, how busy we are, how many emails were in our inbox that morning, what time we got to the office or left. We venerate workaholism and its twin busyness even as we suffer under its cruel tyranny. This is especially dangerous if you live in a city, if you're educated, if you are at all upwardly mobile, and if you are in a career that you're passionate about or just somewhere where rent is on the rise. And even if you're not a workaholic bond trader or an entrepreneur or an ad exec or something like that, ask somebody, ask pretty much anybody in this room, how are you and what do people normally say? Hi, I'm good, but what? Busy. I hear this across class, across ethnicity, across gender, across stage of life. Everybody I talk to is busy. Single moms are busy, retired couples are busy, men are busy, women are busy, teenagers are busy. Every single person I know is busy. Busy has become a moniker for important, to say busy, I'm busy, for most of us is to say, I matter, really, I matter, I do. When was the last time you asked somebody, how are you? And they said, you know, just bored. I'm just medicating the mediocrity of my life via Netflix right now. No, nobody, even if that's true, nobody would ever say that. Because our, our cultural programming is such that if you're, busy, you don't f if you're not busy, you don't feel that you have value. As John Ortberg, uh, an older mentor to me, once said, busyness isn't just a disordered schedule, it is a disordered heart. We are busy with work. 40 hours a week is a thing of the past for most of us. And with the rise of the gig economy, so is Monday through Friday. So-called labor-saving devices, said tongue-in-cheek, like the smartphone or email or text or Slack, mean that now we carry our job around with us in our front right pocket seven days a week. One recent study said that 75% of us sleep next to our phone and 90% of us check it immediately upon waking. 37% of Americans take fewer than seven days of vacation a year. Think about that, 37%. Only 14% take longer than two weeks a year, and 20% of them stay in touch with the office. We're also busy with play. Some of you are like, I hate my job, not me at all, but I am all about you fill in the blank. Our city is a hedonistic wonderland. There is so much to do and see and buy and eat and drink and hike and experience and visit and see. I finally had to end my annual subscription a while back to Portland Monthly because it stressed me out. <laughs> I've been in this city for like, I think 20 plus years and I still felt behind all of the cool kids. Oh, there's another new bar that, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but I have to go if I'm anybody, <laughs> right? So what happens, to so many of us, whether you identify with the workaholic kind of careerist, or you are like old school Portland where people go to retire, and I know that is dying a slow and miserable death with cost of living, but wherever you're on in that spectrum, what happens to so many of us is we speed up our life to this pace of hurry and overload to just cram it all in, running from thing to thing to thing, to work, to the gym, to drinks with friends, to church, to community, and it does something to our soul. 
There is a kind of busyness that goes past your schedule and the miles per hour on your dashboard and into your inner man or woman. Corey Tenboom once said, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. There's so much truth in that because they have the exact same effect. Busyness and sin both cut you off from your awareness of and connection to the Spirit of God and the life that He has for you. I remember a cliche. I grew up in a very kind of workaholism for Jesus kind of culture. God bless it. Um, that was passive aggressive. Don't bless it, please, God, at all. Um, I remember a cliche from my childhood that was used to justify workaholism in the name of the kingdom of God. And it was, well, you know, the devil never takes a day off. Last time I checked, he loses. <laughs> and he's the bad guy. Like, wait a minute. None of that nonsense. So, is there a practice from the way you're awake? Well done. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to mitigate against the workaholism or the hedonism or just the flat-out busyness of our city and life in the modern world? And yes, it is the Sabbath. It's not that bad, I promise, really. <laughs> Last week, we began our series and our winter practice with a big-picture vision of a spirit of restfulness versus a spirit of restlessness and Sabbath as a practice or a spiritual discipline by which we cultivate that spirit all week long. Over the next few weeks, I want to lay out a biblical theology of Sabbath. If you're new to that term, um, all it means is you trace a subject matter through the library of Scripture, and as it develops, you notice key ideas. We won't even get past Exodus this week. Next week, we'll maybe make it to Deuteronomy. Week after that, to the prophets. We won't even get to Jesus for four weeks, all right? I mean, we'll get to Jesus. You know what I mean. We won't get to the Gospels, right? So just to begin, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Skip down to the end of the chapter. God, after six days of all of this work of creation, saw all that he had made, and it was very what? Good. Ah, oh, what a refrain. Easy to believe on a day like today. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he Sabbathed in Hebrew, or he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it what? Holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God, in the story, rested. Let me just speak that over you again. God rested. Yeah, but you don't remember what it's like to have little kids, and God rested. Yeah, but you're not an executive and a demanding God rested. Yeah, but my Myers-Briggs type is just kind of more of a doer, and I'm really extroverted, and I'm not into legalism, and God, I have to say it again, rested. After six days of creation, you think your work week was productive? You know, like, what do you have to show? Like, a lot of email. I just slayed it this week. God's like, okay, take Andromeda, right? God said, okay, now it is time to rest. The word rested is Shabbat in Hebrew. When we get the word Sabbath, as you know from last week, it literally means just to stop or to cease or to finish. The idea here isn't that God was tired or burned out. God's like, oh, the load, it's so crushing. No, 
It's more like that feeling you get, those of you that live maybe in this neighborhood or somewhere on the east side and you have a little yard, one of those first Saturdays of summer, you spend the day just working in the yard, you mow the lawn, you weed, trim, plant, spread bark dust, hang the king folk lights over your little, you know, picnic table or whatever, and then you take a quick shower and you just sit down in your backyard, you crack open a beer, and you just delight in all that you have done. You just delight in your work. That's the idea. Ha, ah, it is very good. That's the idea behind Sabbath. In fact, the word itself can be translated delight. The rabbis point out there's odd language in the text. The NIV reads, by the seventh day, God had finished the work. And that masks the Hebrew to make it a little bit less confusing, which is fine. The ESV, if you have that, is closer to the original, and it reads, quote, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested. Notice how odd that language is? That's closer to the Hebrew. It makes it sound like God created something else after the world on the Sabbath. The rabbis suggest, or at least postulate, that on day seven, God created menuha, which is a Hebrew word that we translate rest, but a better translation is a kind of rest that is a party, kind of like a joyful, peaceful celebration. That's what the Sabbath is, a whole day set aside to follow God's example, to stop and to delight in the world, in your life, in it, and above all in God himself. Dan Allender in his book on the Sabbath has this to say, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath when experienced as God intended is the best day of our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex with your spouse, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a full day of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. For those of you new to the Sabbath, the great question to ask yourself and give shape to your practice is what could I do for 24 hours that would bring me deep joy, that would cause me to in spontaneous combustion just sigh and exhale, it is very good. For me, that means on the Sabbath, you can't get a hold of me. My phone is off, my laptop is away in a closet, and unless if your last name is Comer and you're dying, I'm sorry, I'll talk to you tomorrow. It means I'm out in nature most of the time, walking through Forest Park. It means I'm with my family or my very close friends. It means I'm eating a lot, just a lot. It means there's a bottle of wine at the beginning of the Sabbath and nothing at the end of it. It means homemade sourdough bread from my wife. It means poetry. This time of year, it means like a long cuddle by a fire in the living room over a novel with my kids. It means a weekly Christmas, but without all the stress and that weird uncle. Just a weekly <laughs> celebration of all that is good and beautiful and true. Now, before we move on, as we start to develop a biblical theology, just notice three things from that one paragraph open in front of you. First, notice 
God worked for six days and then he rested, and in doing so, he built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. It is not a coincidence that every single society in the world runs off a seven-day week, not just the Judeo-Christian framed society of the West. Hindu, Buddhist, all of them. The last time a serious attempt was made to change the seven-day week was in 1793 in France during the revolution. It was changed to a 10-day week to up productivity, and the result, suicide, went through the roof. Mental illness was epidemic. Happiness was a disaster, and productivity went down. In fact, there's all sorts of studies now from sociologists that make the point that productivity drops off after about 50 or 55 hours a week. There is virtually, despite all of the bragging, there is virtually zero difference in productivity between those who work 90 hours a week and those who work 50 or 55, which is interestingly about six days of work. We live in a world without rhythm. All sorts of things. The clock, this is a long story, but the clock, I wish Mark Sayers was here, like, talk to us about no rhythm. Um, the clock, electricity, the light bulb, the rising cost of living, secular's mantra of you only live once, carpe diem, the smartphone, all of it has Netflix, all of this has conspired to create a world where we go and 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 we never stop, we never Sabbath but you are not a machine. You are a human being. You have a soul. You were not made to run 24-7. You were made to tap into the rhythm that is in creation, or as our secular friends call it, nature itself. That is a law in the fabric of the universe of work, that's a whole other practice and conversation, and of rest. Wayne Mueller opens his beautiful book on the Sabbath with this paragraph. In the relentless busyness of modern life, we have lost the rhythm between work and rest. All life requires a rhythm of rest. There is a rhythm in our waking activity and the body's need for sleep. There is a rhythm in the way day dissolves into night and night into morning. There is a rhythm as the active growth of spring and summer is quieted by the necessary dormancy of fall and winter. There's a tidal rhythm, a deep, eternal conversation between the land and the great sea. In our bodies, the heart perceptibly rests after each life-giving beat. The lungs rest between the exhale and the inhale. We have lost this essential rhythm. In our culture, our culture invariably supposes that action and accomplishment are better than rest, that doing something, anything, is better than doing nothing. Because of our desire to succeed, we do not rest. Because we do not rest, we lose our way. We miss the compass points that would show us where to go. We bypass the nourishment that would give us succor. We miss the quiet that would give us wisdom. We miss the joy and love born of effortless delight, poisoned by this hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort, what we call hustle now. We can never truly rest. And for want of rest, our lives are in danger. When you don't Sabbath, you go against the rhythm that God himself built into your body and into the world around you. Fight one of the Hebrew traditions is called chokmah, wisdom, which is not just like, oh, good idea. It's like the law of gravity. It's the way that God set up the universe to function. And as the philosopher H.H. Farmer once said, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. I love that. 
This is true on the positive side. History has it that the pioneers who kept the Sabbath on the Oregon Trail arrived here before those who didn't. Did you know that? A more recent scientific study of Seventh-day Adventists done by a legit system. Um, Seventh-day Adventists, if you don't know that, is a Christian denomination, one of the few that is built around the practice of Sabbath, found that not only are they happier on average than Americans and Christians in general, but they live 11 years longer than the average American. One doctor pointed out that if you count up the time devoted to Sabbath over the average lifespan of an American, it's 11 years. His hypothesis was that for every day you Sabbath, you literally get that day added back to your life. But on the negative side, when you go against the grain of the universe, when you don't Sabbath, you don't stop, you just go, whether it's work or play or whatever it is, you suffer the consequences. Burnout, anxiety, high blood pressure, a lousy immune system, sick all the time, brain fog, antibiotics, doubt spiritually, a sense of disconnect from God and your own soul, socially, isolation, shallow relationships, not enough time. You can't fight the Sabbath rhythm any more than you can fight gravity or the second law of thermodynamics. It just is. What you will find is that if you don't practice Sabbath, which again is up to you, um, then illness or cancer or crisis will become your Sabbath. The odds are that Sabbath is coming for you as delight or as discipline. Whether you welcome it or fight it, it just is. Because there is a rhythm that God created you to live into. Secondly, notice that God blessed the seventh day. In Genesis 1, just to go Bible nerd on you for a moment, God blesses three things, animals, humans, and the Sabbath. With the first two, animals and humans, the blessing is, in a sentence, a life-giving ability to procreate. So what does God say to the animals? Be fruitful and increase in number. Then what does God say to human beings? Be fruitful and increase in number. To all of you with children crammed in the basement, well done, check, right? And then, so that's the blessing, and then God blesses the Sabbath. So think about that. God blesses animals, be fruitful, multiply. God blesses humans, be and then God blesses a day? What does that mean? It means that the Sabbath, just like animals and just like human beings, has a life-giving ability to fill your soul and the world itself up with more life. Life is tiring, am I right? No matter how much you love your job, I love mine. By the end of the week, I'm done. I'm tired, I don't have the same, I'm more negative, I'm more just worn down, everything is a little bit more bleak, I just have my, my self-control, my self-discipline is down, I just kind of want to finish The Good Wife finally, whatever it is, I'm just not who I was when I started. Rest refills you with creativity, vision, energy, optimism, hope, peace, clarity, Rest is life-giving. Why? Because this is more than just a day. It is a blessed day. Third, notice that God blessed the seventh day and made it what? Holy. Now this, ah, let's just stay on the Bible nerd thing. The rabbis talk about the principle of first mention, with, which may or may not be a valid hermeneutical principle. But the basic idea is that the first time you read a word or a subject in the library of Scripture, it is essentially a definition did you know that the first time the word holy is ever used in all of the Bible is right here? And what does God make holy? Time. 
Now again, we're not an ancient Mesopotamian. This would have leapt off the page into your mind if you were an original reader. Because in the ancient Near East, the gods and the goddesses were found in space, not in time. At a temple, on a mountain, in a shrine. Think of a ziggurat. That was the ancient form of worship, that thin space. You were higher to heaven, therefore you were closer to the gods. You would think that this god would, like, make a holy temple, but, like, crush the Babylonian one. My temple is better than your temple. Or a holy mountain or a holy cave, or a spring, or whatever. Instead, God makes a holy day. Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it this way, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. Think about the Hebrew tradition. There is no, there's the temple in Jerusalem. Other than that, there's no great cathedrals. That was all post-Constantine. The early church, the Hebrew tradition, nothing. He called the seventh day architecture in time. Because this God, for this God, the one true creator God in Genesis, the entire cosmos in, is his temple. Don't shrink him down to a ziggurat in Iraq now. Everything is his temple, and he is found less in the world of space and more in the world of time. Meaning, if you want to experience God, you don't need to go on a pilgrimage to the other side of the world. All you need to do is stop. Stop. He's found right here, right now, in time. Specifically, you don't need to enter a cathedral. You don't need to travel to St. Paul's in London, as beautiful as it is. You just need to enter a day that is blessed and holy. Now, turn over with me to Exodus chapter 16. Let's keep going. A few more things. Exodus chapter 16. As the story goes on, um, God calls a people to himself that we now know as Israel. And one of the first things he does is command them to take full advantage of this day of delight. Um, let's see, um, this might run us over on time, but before we get to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 16, take a look at verse 9. Here's a story, Israel, if you know it, out in the wilderness. There's no farm, there's no livestock, like they live off the generosity of God. Chapter 16, verse 9. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was um, speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of Yahweh appearing in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, the morning you'll be filled with bread, then you will know that I am Yahweh your God. That evening quail came, covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, manna, or what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, this is the bread that Yahweh has given to you to eat. Now skip down to 21. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what Yahweh commanded. Tomorrow is to be a Sabbath, a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Notice that language. To the Lord can be translated set apart for the Lord or dedicated to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, keep it until morning. Get all ready for it. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. It did not stink or get maggots in it. Always a nice thing with breakfast. 
Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to Yahweh. There it is again, to God. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but the seventh day of the Sabbath there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people were really type A and went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long will you refuse, notice the language here, to keep my commands and my instructions, so command, teaching, instruction, bear in mind that the Lord has given you, there's another word, gift, the Sabbath. That is why the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out, so the people Sabbath, or they rested on the seventh day. Now, turn over to chapter 20. A few months goes by, Israel is still in the wilderness, just starting to practice this art form of Sabbath, to live off of the generosity of God on the seventh day. Then you get to the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, if you know the story, chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of Egypt, land of slavery. Commandment number one, no gods before me. Two, no image before me. Verse seven, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. And take a look at verse eight, commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember. How? By keeping it holy. So it is holy. Don't make it profane. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. That's a whole other teaching. <laughs> Some of you need that one. Um, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, not you, nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant. I never have my servant do anything on the Sabbath. <laughs> nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Uh, that, oh, so much. We'll talk about that next week. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. That's the why. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, notice three more things as we develop our biblical theology of Sabbath. Number four, the Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. Did you pick that up? Over and over the refrain, to the Lord, the adjective holy or set apart, or special. We get this concept of a day off, like we're Portlanders, we're all about the day off. Right, what is a day off? It's just a day where we don't work for our employer in theory, but we still work, we run errands, we pay the bills, we mow the lawn if you have one, or work out, and we play most of the time. We see a movie, we eat out, we hang, we go shopping, a lot of us, you make an Ikea run, there's four hours of your life, or whatever. A day off is when undisciplined and unsabbath people catch up on all the stuff they still have to do at the end of the week. Eugene Peterson called this day off a bastard Sabbath, the illegitimate child of the seventh day in American culture. The Sabbath is not a day off, nor, listen carefully, is it Sunday church. Sunday means different things to different people. For consumers, Sunday is a day to shop, for doers, it's a day to like tackle the to-do list and get stuff done around your house or apartment. Or for careerists, it's a day to get ahead on email and get out ahead of the work. For sports fans, apparently, it's a day to like watch TV or put like a chair in your back of your car and drive somewhere and sit in the freezing cold and paint your face. I, I, apparently, I'm told, right, Alex? Is that correct? That's what I'm told. Um, for church people, it's often a day to come to worship 
to begin your day, and then after that to just kind of day off yourself, you know? Fold laundry, watch Netflix, catch up on email, volunteer at the church, hang out with your friends, for which, by the way, volunteer at church, we say thank you so much. But we also recognize that some people come to the end of Sunday exhausted. That doesn't mean it wasn't a great day, it just means it wasn't a Sabbath. The thing is, we get how to worship at church, we get how to shop, we get how to play, all of us get how to consume entertainment, but very few of us know how to rest. Most of us confuse relaxation with restoration. Think of TV, which is just so ubiquitous. I mean, it's just crazy. Every time I read that stat that the average American watches five hours of TV a day, that's average. It's just like staggering to me, right? I just think, man, how many of you get done binge-watching whatever your show of choice is, and you're just like, man, I just feel so alive in my soul right now. I just feel so much clarity around this season of my life, what I should focus on, who I am. I just feel so free from all the stereotypes of culture right now. I feel so content with my body and my sexuality. I just don't really feel lustful or greedy right now, and I'm just so full of God's joy. Like, I know one person who says that after TV, and I'm not sure. I'm skeptical, right? Most of us just escape our life for a few hours and then come back to the same old problems half the time after not getting enough sleep that night. The Sabbath is a holy day, a day to the Lord. A better translation of that is a day that is set apart for and dedicated to God. When I Sabbath, I just run everything through this grid. Is this rest and is this worship? And I just, any activity, because like, you don't literally just sit on the couch and do nothing. Like, activity isn't bad. Like, is this rest and is this worship? And if the answer is yes, then I enjoy it guilt-free, which for my personality type is a win. If the answer is no or kind of or I'm not sure or is there wiggle room, then I just hold off. There are literally six other days for that. Now, when I say worship, I, mean, I don't just mean like all you do is sing Bethel songs for 24 hours. <laughs> right, and study the Bible and pray all day long. By worship, I mean that you intentionally feed your soul with beauty in order to prompt spontaneous wonder, awe, delight, gratitude, and joy in God's presence. There is a way of curating beauty that will lead you to a whole life of worship. So come to church, sing, study the Bible, pray. Just expand your list of spiritual disciplines to include eating a burrito and drinking a glass of wine or walking in the forest or for us last night playing a board game with your children. Whatever it is that will make you break out in spontaneous worship of God. Fifth, notice that the command is both that the Sabbath is both a command and a gift. It's commanded, remember the Sabbath, and it's a gift. I've given you the Sabbath, end quote. In fact, if you were to break, this is fascinating to me, if you were to break the Ten, ten Commandments into a pie chart, all of you math people, based on length, Sabbath is by far the longest. It would take up something like 37% of the pie. Theologians point out that Sabbath is number four of the ten. It is the bridge between the first three, which are all about our relationship with God, and the last five, which are all about our relationship with neighbor. 
It is the way that we live in love toward God and neighbor. They also point out that it is, this was new to me this last week, it is the only practice that is commanded in the ten. Notice that. So think about all the practices or all the spiritual disciplines. One made the list of the ten. Ten commandments are basically bare minimum morality. It's basically what it is. One practice or spiritual discipline was like bare minimum, we have to command this one. Not prayer, not silence and solitude, not even scripture, but Sabbath. There's all sorts of debate um, over whether or not followers of Jesus have to keep the Sabbath. Is it a part of the New Testament covenant? Covenant Is it still a command binding on us or not? Most scholars argue no. It was part of the Torah for Israel. There's no command to practice the New Testament. Uh, there's no command in the New Testament to practice the Sabbath. Paul doesn't command you and I to do that, nor does Jesus command it. Now we have the Lord's Day where we worship together, and there are commands around that as a church, and then we just kind of live from a spirit of restfulness all week long because of Christ's finished work on the cross. That's the majority position. I actually disagree. My position is the minority one. I would argue it's one of the Ten Commandments, Like, murder is not cool now that we're forgiven by Jesus or whatever. It's one of the ten. Jesus was an adamant practitioner of the Sabbath. He never broke the command of Sabbath. He broke the Mishnah. It's a whole other thing. We'll talk about that later. Not the command of the Sabbath. He never said anything to abrogate or annul the Sabbath. The other nine are not in question. Why would this one be? And it is the one command that is rooted in the Genesis story. That God actually gets. He doesn't say, like, don't murder and here's why you really shouldn't do it. He says, don't Sabbath, probably remember the Sabbath, and here is why, because in six days God made the world, and he blessed the Sabbath, and he made it. He even has an explanation for why. Now, honestly, if I'm off, and most likely I am, I like rules a lot, so of course I'm on the side of rules, right? But if I'm off, it doesn't even matter. Who cares? It's a pointless debate. The Sabbath still stands as a rhythm of creation, Fighting about whether or not we have to keep the Sabbath is like fighting about whether or not we have to keep the law of gravity. It just, it's like God has set us free from the law of gravity. Okay, have fun with that one on the roof, right? It just is. It just is. We ignore it at our own peril. Personally, I love the language of the text, how Sabbath is a command, but it's also a gift. The Lord has given you the Sabbath, end quote. Whether we have to enjoy this gift or not, I don't personally care. I want to. Finally, notice that the command is to remember the Sabbath. I love that word, remember, because we forget, right? If I, for one, I am just prone to amnesia. This is why so much of teaching and preaching at church is things you already know, because if you're anything like me, you need to hear it again and again and again. You need to remember. And it's not, that word remember there in Hebrew doesn't mean like, you know, like multiple choice on a test. It means drag into your active memory and your prefrontal cortex a reality from the past or just from the universe that is to give shape to your behavior and your life in the moment. So we are to remember the Sabbath. That means more than just like, remember to take a day off every seven days. It means remember that there is a rhythm to creation. We work for six and then we rest. Remember that this is creation, not nature. There is a creator. This world was made. It is not the product of blind chance, but the product of a brilliant mind. 
Remember that life is more than a war with the curse for six days to wring profit from the earth's soil. Life is a gift to receive and worship. Remember that life is hard, but it's also good. That's why suicide, as tragic as it is, is still a tiny fraction. The vast majority of people living under the crushing weight of suffering in the human condition still decide that life is a net positive. At the end of the day, it is good. The world is full of evil and pain, but it's also full of wonder and kindness and generosity and joy. And above all, just remember that all of life comes to us as a gift, and we owe it to our Creator and His lavish generosity to enjoy it. We owe it to Him. You parents, if you just gave your kids something for Christmas, I gave my kid an apple. It was really generous this year. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. That that. Ah, never mind. Moving on. Not a not technology. I meant like an apple. Apple is like a joke on how parents used to give like coal or an apple. It's just a bad joke. I'm sorry. It's the 10 a.m. It's the warm up. Um, what what do you want? Mo- I was, I'm kidding. What do you want most for your children? How can your children pay you back for your generosity? Well, when they really enjoy and delight in your gift, man, you just feel so much happiness. How do you worship God gratefully? Just re- Have you been outside today? Go enjoy that. Just enjoy it as an act of worship. To recap, the Sabbath is built into the rhythm of creation. It is blessed. It's a happy day. That's what that word means of delight. It's holy. It is a day where we find God. You want to search for God? You don't need to travel or go to a cathedral. Just slow down and enter a day. It's a day for rest and worship, not just a day off or a day where you go to church in the morning and then you do your stuff. It's a command, but more importantly, it's a gift, and it is a day that we are to remember. On that note, our practice for the week is all up at practicingtheway.org Sabbath. Week two, those of you that started last week, um, is called the Preparation Day, and the basic idea is just that in our 24-7 world, the Sabbath will not happen on accident. It is a deliberate, intentional, countercultural practice to that of our culture. If you let the Sabbath just happen to you spontaneously, more than likely it will just take the path of least resistance and devolve into Peterson's concept of a bastard Sabbath. To Sabbath well requires, ironically, a little bit of work, which is the very thing most of us are trying to get away from. In fact, to Sabbath really well requires that you live from a restful spirit all week long, so you're not so exhausted by the end of the week that all you do on Sabbath is crash with no capacity for delight. More on that in a few weeks. For now, the idea is just to take the day before your Sabbath, or whatever your work schedule is, some time in the week before your Sabbath, and prepare. This language of the preparation day comes from the New Testament, where three times it's used for the day before the Sabbath, which in the Jewish calendar where time was measured from sundown, not sun up, that would have been Friday up until sundown. The Jews in the first century called that the preparation day. For you, this might look like grocery shopping or cooking so the meal is all ready for the next day or inbox zero or scheduling a time and place to meet your girlfriend for coffee so that you can just turn your phone off and not have to worry about that. It might mean house cleaning if you're an OCD neat freak in therapy, just saying. It might mean running errands, whatever it is that you need to get done in order to actually delight on the Sabbath, to take an entire 24-hour period to delight 
in the world and your life in it and above all in God. To end, that doesn't mean that you have to get it all done. You know, um, there are all sorts of ways to practice the Sabbath. There's no list of do's and don'ts or rules. But the traditional Sabbath is from sundown on Friday, actually 20 minutes before sundown, so early this time of year, you know, 4.20 or 4.30, and then late in the summer to the same time on Saturday evening. That's actually how we practice it in my home. And there's something I love about that ancient custom, which again is not from the New Testament or the Old, it's just a custom, it's just a best practice of 20 minutes before sundown. What I love about it is it's a time that is out of my control, and it teaches me that I stop not when I'm done, because I'm never done. I stop when I run out of time. <laughs> I just turned in uh, a manuscript for my next book, and there's a little saying in the writer world that a book is never done, it's just due. And, um, and it is so true. I think that's just kind of true of work in general. Work is never done, you're just out of time. It's just too late, or it's just due, or there's just a deadline, or you're just, it's time to go to bed. It's never done. If you're just, there's, there's this heart of us that always wants to procrastinate, not just to another day, but to another season of life, or when my children are older, or when I'm out of grad school, or when I'm just working one job, or when my schedule is different, or when my spouse and I both have the same day off, or it's always when, 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 when. That's a tragic way to frame your life. You will never live then. You will only live now. And one of the things this teaches us is, listen, there comes a day when you just have to let it be done. Yesterday, I had this little project I wanted to do. I had it all, I'm a scheduler. I had it all scheduled in my afternoon, but I also had a phone call with one of my best friends. And there was a tender moment in the conversation, and what was supposed to be a 15-minute, hey, how was your week, turned into a long conversation about the soul. And then I got done, and it was time. And it didn't get done, and guess what? that's okay. One of the beautiful things that you find about Sabbath is that you take a day off, or not a day off, you take a day, you know, away, and guess what? The universe gets along just fine without you. It's shocking to me. I wake up every Sunday morning. The church is still alive and well. You're still here. My house is still standing. There's still food in our cupboards. On a serious note, the Sabbath is an act of trust in God. There's a lot of talk in particular, not so much in our church, but in the Reformed tradition, if you come about that, about the sovereignty of God, how God is over all. And however you define sovereignty, Sabbath is how we practice the sovereignty of God. Not just believe it in our head, but embody it in our body. It is a weekly act of trust that there is a God and he's not me and I live off his generosity, in his world, off his love, where there's more than enough for all. He is the father, I'm the daughter, I'm the son. It's a weekly reminder that my identity is not out there. It's in here from God. My identity is not from what I do. It's not from whether I killed it at work or not, which is gonna look different for each one of us. It's not from what other people thought of me. It's not from what I own or how I dress or how cool my apartment is or uncool it is. Sabbath is a weekly reminder that I am who I am loved by, and so are you. My family remember the Sabbath. Let's stand together and pray.